I am Plata on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. John Boyko joins me again as I was reading his latest book, The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War, uh, or uh, perhaps it was as I was preparing for our interview now. I saw that the book was to have been published a year ago, but had been postponed because of COVID-19. It has just been released to great acclaim, and I found it particularly apt that I was reading it in recent weeks, uh, while uh, discussions of the rise of uh, anti-Asian hatred had been has been something that's been prevalent in the discourse. The book is not only solid history, as all uh, John's books are, but there's a marvelous narrative through this book that makes the characters lively, engaging, important, and at times extraordinary. I'll ask John about these guides he writes about in his book, as well as uh, the heretofore lack of recognition of uh, Canada's contribution before, during, and after the Vietnam War. We see in the chapter on the distinguished war hero and jurist here in British Columbia, Sherwood Lett, about his efforts in the 1950s as a Canadian commissioner for the International Control Commission as the uh, first Indochina War ended. There's a chapter on Blair Seaborn, a Canadian diplomat who met secretly with the North Vietnamese in an effort to prevent the war. There's a chapter on Claire Culhane, the war resister who'd actually been in Vietnam as a nurse and who saw firsthand the folly and immorality of the war. There are chapters on Joe Erickson, a war resister who came to Canada, and Doug Carey, a Canadian who enlisted to fight. We see 50 years later the toll and impact of their respective decisions on themselves, their families, and Canada itself. And then there's a chapter on Rebecca Trin and her family. Fleeing Saigon, she and her family were one of the uh, many uh, families who sought refuge in Canada. There are moving moments that Mr. Boyko illustrates so well with his writing that I was often moved reading the book. It's a book uh, we, that we need at this time, and it's a book that needs to be read because Canada is a warrior society, as John contends, and uh, whether or not the conflict is officially declared as Vietnam wasn't, the effect of war is keenly felt. John Boyko is the author of seven previous books, including Sir John's Echo, Cold Fire, Blood and Daring, and Bennett, The Rebel Who Changed and Challenged a Nation, a biography of R.B. Bennett. The latter uh, he was first on the program with back in 2010. He is the former Dean of History at Lakefield College School in Lakefield, Ontario, where he joined me from last week. Visit johnboyko.com for more information. This new book is published by Knopf. Please welcome back to the Planta on the Line program, uh, John Boyko. Mr. Boyko, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good yourself. Terrific. Um, the, the title of your book, um, I, I think that's a great place to start, The Devil's Trick. What does that refer to? Well, the devil's trick, I say, is convincing leaders that war is desirable, the rest of us that war is acceptable, mm. and combatants and that everything they are doing or seeing is normal or at least necessary. That's the devil's trick. Yeah, yeah. And, and if, if one reads the book, as we urge people to do, um, they'll, they'll understand what, what all this means in, in the context of which you write. Something else that you write near the beginning of the book that I think um, probably might uh, surprise people, but, uh, and it certainly surprises people uh, when it comes to the war in Vietnam, is that Canada has, has, uh, is a warrior state. Well, I believe that it is, and if we have lived through a, a long time where we prided ourselves in everything that we had to do with respect to peacekeeping. 
And we have justifiable pride in that. But that does not negate the fact that if you look way back in Canadian history, from before the settlers came, mm-hmm. uh, there were indigenous wars. And then we were born out of the American Revolution when we decided not to join the American Revolution. And then the War of 1812, we were fighting for that and became uh, Canadians a little bit more due to that. The American Civil War, I wrote a book called Blood and Daring about that, where we were very much involved in the American Civil War. In fact, we were born how we were and why and when we were because of that war. Then we were in the 20th century in in the First World War, the Mm -hmm. Second World War, and Mm -hmm. the Korean War. And so by the time we get to the Vietnam War, we have to admit to ourselves that we are indeed a warrior state. Yeah, yeah. And and, and so why is it then, John, that that, um, Canada's contribution before, during, and after the Vietnam War, why have we tended to overlook that, say? Well, we're overlooking, I think, the Vietnam War and, and our involvement in it for a couple of reasons, the most important of which is that we were not directly involved in the war. We did not declare war like we did in Korea or in uh, the Second World War in the First World War. We did not send our troops. Canadian troops were not fighting in Vietnam. That does not mean that Canadians were not fighting mm-hmm. in Vietnam, mm-hmm. because 20,000 of Canadians were. That does not mean the Canadian weapons and weaponry and chemical weapons were not there, because they were. Canadian soldiers and diplomats were in Vietnam. It does not mean that Vietnam did not influence us in many ways, because it did. So I think that's why we, even at the time, said, and our prime ministers said, prime ministers plural said, mm-hmm. we're not involved in Vietnam, but we were. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the book is, the way that you've set up the book is just marvelous that you, you've chosen six people. Um, as guides, it's a marvelous way into Vietnam, and, and um, I guess I'll, I'll start with the, with the first two, Sherwood Lett and, and Blair Seaborn. Um, there are, uh, I was delighted to, to read, a Vancouver connection to both, certainly with Lett, a distinguished career here in Vancouver in the judiciary. They represent what you describe in the book as a golden age of Canadian diplomacy. Um, they, they were well-intentioned, skilled, skillful officials, and, and what did they try to do? When the French left Vietnam in 1954, after basically controlling the area that we now know as Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos for literally centuries, Mm -hmm. when they finally left in 1954, the great powers met in Geneva and they set up a thing called the International Control Commission. And it was made up of India, which was a neutral state, Poland, which was a communist state, and Canada, which was to represent the West. Mm -hmm. And those three countries each sent contingents built of soldiers and of diplomats, and we were to oversee the French leaving that region, taking all of their weaponry with them. They were to oversee a ceasefire because it was a civil war that was going on in Vietnam at the same time, a ceasefire between the two sides, and anybody who wanted from the north to move south could do so or, or move the other way. And we were to oversee an election that was to happen in 1956, whereby the people of Vietnam were to choose who they wanted to lead them and therefore reunify the country, because that Geneva Convention had split the country at the 17th parallel. And so Brigadier General uh, Sherwood Lett was there as the leader of the Canadian ICC Commission in trying to oversee a ceasefire that didn't really exist and a peace 
that was tenuous at best, and with the Americans, the Chinese, the North and South Vietnamese all breaking the rules, they were doing the best they could for the people of Vietnam. Well, we'll talk about seaboard in just a sec. But 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 the one thing I was curious about was was I mean we we all know about the Great Red Scare in, in the United States and the fear of communism there with with um, after the um, the Rosenberg case and then through through McCarthyism was there a great fear of communism in Canada? I know Igor Gazinsko was a, was a factor here. I mean was was he a real threat or did people see him as a threat? Yeah, a lot of people uh, forget the fact that it was Igor Gazenko who was a clerk, a Russian clerk, Soviet clerk, working in Ottawa, who went to the Canadians and basically brought a great deal of information, uh, documents that said that Russian agents, secret agents, spies, were working in Canada. They were also in the States. They were also in Britain. And when that uh, revealed itself, People, not only Americans, but Canadians, Brits, everybody in the West realized that this Cold War was very much real. Mm. That is, that the Soviets were spying on us, and of course we were spying on them. And all of what the government said in Canada and the United States, and all that was said in the modern culture of the time, said, we have to fear the Soviets. They are coming to get us. And it was real. I mean, we know now that... Our side won, Mm -hmm. but there was no guarantee at the time that the West was going to win this. And in 1950s, when Vietnam was beginning and the Canadians were right there at the beginning, uh, there were nuclear weapons on both sides. Prime Minister Pearson, external affairs minister Pearson in the 1950s, and then later Prime Mm -hmm. Minister Pearson's greatest fear about Vietnam was that would it escalate into a Soviet-American nuclear war. So I mentioned Blair Seaborn earlier. Um, how much of his work um, in negotiating Vietnam at the time, how much of that was known, say, even in the press? It was absolute secret. The only thing that, uh, the only time that it came out, what Blair Seaborn had been up to, was when the Pentagon Papers were released mm. in the early 70s. And that released a whole lot of secrets about what had been going on in Vietnam. And only then did the Canadian government admit what he was doing. I was really honored to meet Blair Seaborn um, in Ottawa. I got to meet him. He was in his mid-90s. He, he, he subsequently died. But he was a brilliant man that, that gave me great insights as to what happened. And what happened was, in 1964, President Johnson, American President Johnson, had decided that there was no way they could win in Vietnam and he should pull the Americans out of Vietnam. This is before he had really deployed American troops in a big way to Vietnam. He knew he could not win. But he had no way of negotiating with Ho Chi Minh, the northern communist leader. Uh There was no American ambassador. There was no back channel. So he chose Canada to work as an intermediary. And Pearson, uh, Prime Minister Pearson at that time, chose Blair Seaborn. Blair Seaborn went as the leader of the International Control Commission that was still there, and in a secret mission flew to Hanoi and met with the Prime Minister of North Vietnam. He took the message that President Johnson gave him, and then he and the Prime Minister of North Vietnam negotiated for about three hours and came up with a deal. This deal would end American involvement in Vietnam and avoid the war. Mm -hmm. The war wouldn't need to happen. He sent that deal back to Washington and to Ottawa, and Johnson rejected it. He thought it was too naive, and he, and he just wouldn't, wouldn't go for it. Mm. The tragedy is that Seaborn could have ended that war then, 
the deal that President Nixon signed in 1973 mm. when Kissinger made the deal in Paris that did end the American involvement in Vietnam War was almost to the letter what Blair Seaborn had negotiated in 1964. The war did not need to happen. Yeah. Three million Vietnamese, 160 Canadians, uh -huh. and 58,000 Americans died needlessly. Yeah, that's a tragedy as one reads the book in one of these moments, as I was telling you before, where I, I was quite moved as I was reading it. Um, the other thing that, that, that's fascinating um, through all of this, you mentioned Pearson and, and Johnson. Um, the, the relations between Pearson and, and, and Kennedy uh, is something that you cover, too, in the book, as well as uh, Trudeau and, and um, Johnson and, uh, uh, no, I guess Trudeau and, and Nixon. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I was thinking in the context of Trudeau and Trump about um, you know how how often personal relations uh, may not be great, and and I've mentioned these presidents and prime ministers a moment ago. They, they were not always great, but but they seemed to, to to get the job done in terms of um, what needed to you know whether it was an auto pact that needed to be uh, negotiated or, or other trade deals, um, whatever Canada thought of the United States' involvement in uh, Vietnam, and, and Canada was quite critical at, at numerous points, um, there, there was still a professional relationship, wasn't there? There was. Um, and I think that goes to the fact that the Canadian-American relations are deep and complex, and they are way more nuanced than simply the Prime Minister and President getting along. In fact, in 1965, uh, Prime Minister Pearson was about to be given an award, a peace award, at Temple University in Philadelphia. He went down to deliver the speech in Philadelphia, and he complimented Johnson on how he was handling the war, but he said the bombing of North Vietnamese cities is killing too many civilians, and he believed that that strategy should be ended. By the time he left the stage, there was already a phone call waiting for him. The next day he was at Camp David, where President Johnson met him, took him out into, onto a terrace, began screaming at him, getting nose-to-nose -nose with him. The president grabbed the prime minister by the lapels, lifted him to his toes, and said, <laughs> how dare you come here in my living room and piss on my rug? Right, right. Now, if we want to talk about a president and prime minister not getting along, <laughs> I think that goes far beyond uh, Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump. And yet, and yet, there were no ramifications with respect to, as you mentioned, the signing of the auto pact mm. and other deals going forward with respect to Canadian-American relations. Yeah. But that has to be a low mark of Canadian prime ministers getting along with American presidents. Indeed, indeed. Um, someone, um, another one of the people that you write about in the book, and... and um, who um, is one of the more fascinating people that I've, I've read about in, in, in recent years, a real hero, uh, is Claire Colhorn. Um, before we talk about her and, and, and the work she did, she, she points out, um, I can't remember when this was exactly, but, but uh, the, the, hypocr the hypocrisy, I guess, of Canada, um, say, um, uh, opposing the war, not participating, but then really that that um, to the tune of uh, what three hundred million dollars a year at one point, uh, Canada yeah, was was making off seventy million. Yeah, what what happened? Claire Colhane was um, she wasn't young; she was well, not old, but forty eight mm -hmm. years old, uh, and the mom of a of a teenage girl um, still at home. When she read a newspaper or not a newspaper ma magazine article about a Canadian made hospital in Vietnam was staffed by Canadians, and she enlisted with the external affairs and went. 
Another way that Canada was involved with the Vietnam War. There mm-hmm. were several Canadian-built hospitals over there. She lasted about six months, and it wasn't the horror of the war that got to her, although that was horrible enough. Yeah, yeah. It was, as you say, the hypocrisy, because she saw that one department of the Canadian government was building hospitals to help people, while other parts of the Canadian government were supporting the building of armored vehicles, the manufacture of ammunition, TNT, gun sites, even the manufacture of napalm and Agent Orange that were filling those hospitals. Mm. She came home after six months and became a one-man army, they called her, although she was a woman. Mm. And she was that army that was going from coast to coast delivering speeches, and she was doing radio interviews and TV interviews and writing letters to politicians. She did other stunts that I think were amusing and effective at the same time, trying to bring people's attention to the fact that, as we mentioned before, a lot of Canadians didn't think we were involved, but we were right up to our neck. But we decided collectively that we needed the jobs, we needed the money. Now, about $370 million mm. was, was being made by these arms sales, but that's in 1966. If we count for inflation, that'd be over $2 billion now. Wow. A significant amount of money made by Canadians in Canadian factories going to the war in Vietnam. And, and uh, there's a marvelous line in the book that you write, swapping sovereignty for security principle for jobs. And that's, it. that's what people like Colhane were, were speaking out against, people like Tommy Douglas as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, another Vancouver connection, because I, I believe she moved out here in, in, in the early 70s she and uh, was, was a great advocate for prison reform in, uh, here in British Columbia. Um, that's right. Two young men and, and, um, that you talk about in the book, very different men, Joe Erickson and Doug Carey, um, there are scenes in this book that are so moving. You write about them so beautifully, experiences that they had. Let, let's begin with, with Erickson. He, he, he was an American, and he came to Canada um, opposed to the war. Um, I'm, I'm 39, John, so, so I'm sure a lot of people like me might, might have conflated, say, draft dodger with deserter. There, there's a distinction, isn't there? Yeah, there very much is. The draft dodger would be someone like Joe Erickson who had signed up with the service uh, that he needed to, to say that I am registered to be drafted. But when it became quite apparent to him that his number was going to be coming up, he and his wife, uh, he was young at the time, he was only 18, but he was married, decided, that's it, we, we do not believe in this immoral war, we are leaving. And they left for Canada. And about 30,000 mm. young men and women left the United States and settled in Canada. They were helped by a number of organizations. Uh, there were some in Vancouver, there were some in Toronto, Montreal. There were, there were these draft dodger uh, organizations all over Canada helping them. And many settled and did quite well, and many remained in Canada after the war was over, even after Jimmy Carter, the president, said that they could come home. Mm-hmm. The mass, vast majority stayed. Now, they were the draft dodgers. The deserters were a different group altogether in that they had already become part the military service in the United States, mm. but then ran from that service and escaped to Canada. And while there were many uh, evader op- organizations that helped the draft dodgers, even they did not want to help the deserters, yeah. because while Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians, this surprised me, I thought 
my goodness, we're nice people. We sure. brought in all of these Americans. But polls at the time said the vast majority of Canadians did not support the draft dodgers. They were helped by a number of churches. Yeah. A lot of church money went to help these organizations to run to help them. But the vast majority of the people in the pews did not support the draft dodgers. But when the pollster asked about supporting deserters, the numbers skyrocketed. Mm. Even the draft dodger organizations would not help deserters because they felt that their funding would disappear, all the funding that they made through fundraising. And so much different when you're talking about draft dodgers and the draft deserters. Yeah, you mentioned the, the figure, about 30,000 or so, and, and um, you know some of them are, are, are names that we know. Who, who came, In the case of Margaret Atwood, she came back, but, but uh, other people like Diane Francis came here. Um, it, it's amazing to think that this generation of, of, of uh, people um, certainly affected the culture, and uh, you mentioned this near the end of the book, so I'm skipping around here. Um, it, it, it's... Um, such an influence. I mean, you look at Joanna Skibsrud's book, The Sentimentalists, um, right. j- just to help how much Vietnam still uh, consumes a lot of our thinking. It does, and it was at about the same time that Expo 67 was happening, which was mm. a real boon for Canadian patriotism. And what was happening at the time in the 1960s is Canadians were turning from Britain turning toward the United States. This was a many-decade shift Mm -hmm. in in our emphasis in our economy and our cultural uh, home points. And what was happening in the Vietnam War is that while we were looking at the United States, listening to the music and following their television shows and movies and books and all of that, all of a sudden the Vietnam War told us this is not somebody that we want to emulate after all. Look at what is going on with Vietnam. Look at what is happening on the streets as a result of Vietnam. And so what Canadians did, and again, I'm not talking about every single Canadian, but there was a cultural shift that happened. It happened with respect to our music and with respect to our books and respect to what was happening and being taught in universities and said, yes, there was a growth in anti-Americanism, but this was a growth in pro-Canadianism. And I quote in the book several uh, scholars and literary figures who say that basically Canadian nationalism, as we know it now, has its roots in the anti-Vietnam War movement Mm -hmm. of the 1960s. And and I I mentioned Doug Carey a moment ago. Here's someone who who is a Canadian who who, uh, felt compelled to to join, uh, to enlist. Um, and you talk about him, and then you, you uh, t- tell the story of, of Rob McSorley from here in East Vancouver, where I'm, I'm talking to you from. I'm not, I'm, yeah. I don't live that far from Templeton. Um, uh, th- these are young men who, who decide to fight and who have to contend with, while over there, issues of identity. You know, how Canadian are they? Or, I mean, they're certainly not American, but they're, they're fighting an American cause. Yeah, there was about 20, and I say about because we don't know exactly how many Canadians fought with the Americans in the Vietnam War, because it's, it's tough to identify them. Mm-hmm. Doug Carey was, for example, a dual citizen. Well, mm-hmm. is he Canadian? Because he, he moved to Canada with his parents when he was three years old, and he lives just outside of Ottawa now, uh, but he is still a dual citizen. Well, is he a Canadian? The Americans would say he's an American. What about the Canadians that went and then stayed in the United States after? 
or a number of Canadians who shifted their citizenship midway through their tour. So it's a difficult number, but about 20,000 Canadians fought in the American uniforms in the Vietnam War, and they suffered all the same ways that we know that the American soldiers suffered while they were in the war. They suffered all the same ways that the American soldiers suffered when they came home from the war. Mm. The post-traumatic stress syndrome that, that helped, that hurt so many American soldiers when they returned and took them decades to get over affected the Canadians too. But the Canadians that fought in Vietnam were not given a dime by their government to help them with, with these emotional and, and physical wreckage of the war, mm -hmm. and they weren't even allowed to join the Canadian Legion yeah. because this was not the Canadian War. We did not declare war in Vietnam. So they couldn't even gather at a legion to, to commiserate and try to give each other the support that they needed. So Doug Carey, who I met and spent some time with, lives in Carlton Place, just outside of Ottawa, I think, mm -hmm. was one of many who suffered in that way. And we have to remember, too, that about 160 names, including Rob McSorley, mm -hmm. are there on the Vietnam War uh, Veterans War Memorial in Washington, the great gash of, of granite that mm -hmm. remembers all 58,000 that died. About 160 of them are Canadian. Yeah, let's, let's not forget that. Um, it, 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 you talk about the Trin family, and um, again, another part of the book where I was, was quite moved as I was reading it. Um, I, I, by the way, I was reading somewhere online, I think it was on your website, that this book was to have come out a, a year ago, is that right? Yes, it was to come out in May, but COVID put an end to that. Like yeah. It put an end to a lot of things and postponed it for a year. So, so I'm reading the, the chapter on the uh, Trin family the, the other night, and um, not just because my parents are Filipino, but because of the times that we're living in with, with the rise of um, anti-Asian um, hatred in, um, yeah. you know, all over the place. Um, that chapter itself reads very differently at this time than it, I, I would assume it would have read a year ago. Um, and um, it breaks your heart that, that none of the, the, um, the prejudice that, that, that uh, the young Trin children, as well as their parents, Face. I mean, that's not new in this country, is it? Uh, it's a shame. And we need to look back at the anti-Asian foundations of this country. Because the ancient uh, times, if we look back way into the 1800s, and Vancouver and Victoria were notorious mm. for the anti-Asian racism discrimination that existed. There were race riots in Vancouver in 1907. So, so the anti-Asian element that is part of our culture now, an ugly part of our culture, has been around for a long time. And it certainly rose its head when the Canadian government decided that it would help all of those people who had suffered as a result of the madness of the Vietnamese War and needed to get out of Laos and Cambodia too, but primarily out of Vietnam. And the Trin family was one of those families. They were a middle-class family that mm -hmm. were living quite well, thank you very much, in Saigon. But they, because of their Chinese roots, needed to get out. And so when they did, I tell the story of the hardship that they had coming over, and some of the stories are absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. I spoke to Rebecca Trin on the phone several times. She lives now in Calgary. And some of the stories she told broke my heart. And I think they're the, the sections of the book that uh, you said brought you to tears. Yeah, yeah. And then when they finally arrived, so happy to be in what they considered the promised land, they had to face the racism and discrimination that so many of the people that we even called the boat people,
people, mm -hmm. derogative term, when they finally arrived. But they stayed, they contributed. And like so many of immigrants, not just of Asian descent, but so many, they work hard and they contribute. In fact, many people might know that one of the girls that came over, the two daughters in the Trin family, right. was Judy Trin. And you might see her uh, now on CBC TV. You see her, Judy Trin, from Ottawa. Indeed, at the Fifth Estate as well, yeah. Um, the, the, what's breathtaking as I'm reading that, that chapter in, in particular is um, that's one family. And... Um, uh, it was more than 50,000, wasn't it, John, uh, uh, people from, from yeah. Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia who, who were brought over here at that time in the, in the late 70s, early 80s? Is that right? Yes, it was, it was even higher than that. It was about 70,000 by the time we brought them all over that we could wow. bring them. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this comes back you know, to, to, to recent years where, where um, Canada you know, took in um, refugees from Syria, not in not not in as high numbers, but but still not insignificant. And and um, the, the other thing that I was thinking about as I was reading the book, the involvement you mentioned this a moment ago already. The churches um, yeah. played such a big part in in all of this, um, not just with say uh, uh, hospital care, um, but settling and sponsoring families, right? Yes, and Canada was at the forefront of teaching other countries how you do this, and that is that in the Vietnam era, when we made the decision that we were going to help as many refugees as we could to get out of that post-war madness, they said that we will, that is the government, will put up the money and, and the, the supports that are necessary to bring families over, but that they would match every person or organization that would bring people over as well. And they were swamped because so many people wanted to help. Churches led the call, yeah. but many organizations and many individuals grouped together and said, we will help those people. And when the Syrian crisis happened and began in 2015, and Canada again answered the call and said, we will help those people escaping the new madness in Syria, we used exactly the same model as we had set up with the end of the Vietnam War. We mm. used that same model. We had it ready because we had already done it. And what is interesting is that the Trin family had three children. All three children sponsored Syrian refugees. Is that right? That's, yes. a, that's a remarkable story. Um, uh, are you retired from teaching now, John? I am. I have, I have uh, retired from teaching, and I'm focusing on my writing. I've, I've been talking to you for, I looked at the, the notes here for the last, uh, I guess, 11 years. 10 years 11 years ago was the, um, the, the Bennett book first came out. Is that right? That's that's right. Yeah, yeah, this is my eighth book, and I'm I'm pleased that we get to chat with every new book. I I, I believe me, I enjoy it a great deal. Um, there's something about this book though that that um, was particularly special as as I was reading it, and and um, uh, there's so much change in the 1960s, and and you evoke that through references to pop culture. It must have been fun to research, was it? It was. It was fun to to research a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the culture references, because I think it's important when I'm writing a history book that I don't want a history book to be like so many of the dry history books that I need to read in order to write this book. I don't want it to be just one damn thing after another. I want it to be hooked on stories. I want the stories to be real. And that's why I consider myself as much a storyteller as an historian. I want the reader to be involved with the stories. And the way to be involved with the stories is to try to put 
what is happening into, call, into context. And yeah. the way to do that is to by talking about what was it feeling like? What were they watching on TV? What yeah. were they listening to in the radio? What yeah. is going on at the time? This was not people just going through the sterile uh, political apparatus that was happening at the time. They were living lives. So tell the stories that allow the reader to see that. And the other thing that you do so marvelously well is, is um, just in the, in the context of Claire Colhane, for example, um, you put into context the sexism, the ageism that, 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 um, that she encountered or that would be encountered when her name was published in the newspaper or something, you know, or mentioned in the press, um, you know, little asides that, that uh, wouldn't pass muster today. Exactly. She was written off. She did a 10-day fast on Parliament Hill in order to try to bring attention to Canada's involvement with Vietnam and saying that that involvement had to end. And some of the things that were written about her in headlines and some of the CBC and other TV reports that were done at the time makes, make us cringe yeah, now yeah. because she was written off because at that point she was in her early 50s or about 50 years old, already written off as this old woman, yeah. this grandfather, grandmother, and how dare this woman this grandmother talk about these kinds of things. This is a man's work and a man's job, and and it makes us cringe today and celebrate the progress that we've made. There's a whole lot more to be made, Indeed. but at least we've progressed beyond what we saw in in the reaction to Claire Colhane. Indeed, indeed. Uh, are you working on another book now? Absolutely, always working on the next one. I can't wait, uh, whatever that'll be. I mean, I, I go back to the, the, the Cold War book that you wrote about um, and Baker and Kennedy and Pearson and and uh, the Sir John A. book. I enjoyed that a great deal, and, and of course, the Bennett book. Um, I'll look forward to talking to you the next one. Congratulations on this one, though. This is this one is a very fine achievement, uh, and g- uh, good luck with it, uh, John. Thank you, Joe. It's terrific to talk to you again. The website for more is at johnboyko.com. The book is called The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War. It is published by Knopf. Its author, John Boyko, joined me on the line from Lakefield, Ontario. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Planta.